Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Yeah. Shall I Shall I begin this session with the story of how I was tricked into the twist ending, uh, into not knowing about the twist ending of this play? Weren't you and I sitting together when we saw this play? Yes, and we fell all over onto Patrick. Yes, yes. Yeah. The yeah. only thing I remember besides that and having that <laughs> amazing group reaction where we both literally raised both of our hands to our faces and went <gasps> together, the three of us, was that mm-hmm. my boss at the time at the box office, Monica Cross, was really excited Monica. about this play and she told me a whole synopsis of it except for the ending she did not tell me the very graphic and sexual way in which the king dies um that that is a production choice yes yes yeah it was a production choice i'm I'm not even sure she had seen that production but she knew he was gonna die in bed like that To the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show, we are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week we are telling you all about the maid's tragedy. Yes. Every week we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Fox Shakespeare, except when yeah. we don't, like when it's a yeah. Beaumont and Fletcher week, like this week. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. But we, we're going to discuss it at what we like to call the 101 level. Yeah, so that's, you know, basic introductory stuff. You're going to get everything that you need to know to have a general understanding of the play, uh, some other cool stuff that you'll get nowhere else, like our opinions, and that's about it. Yes. It's going to be great. Yes. And because this is not a Shakespeare play, it's by one of his contemporaries, we're going to meet the contemporaries. This week, it's a doubleheader, Beaumont and Fletcher. Just let me give you a, a real quick, like, bromantic love story of the dudes Beaumont and Fletcher. So way back in the day, like last year or something of this podcast, um, Jess put out an amazing slew of oh, yeah, photos right. on our Instagram. And Yeah, we were saying who has the best hair. Yeah, and like the hottie with the body, the ginger um, mm. hottie, that mm. was John Fletcher. So if you remember mm. from that, that was Fletcher. Uh, So we'll start with Fletcher. Fletcher, born in 1579, died in 1625. Fletcher took over resident playwright status with the King's Men after Shakespeare retired. Uh, He apparently entered Cambridge University at age 11 preparing to uh, for a career in the church and then he was somehow hit with a theater bug and never finished that and never followed that path he began writing for the boys playing companies of london like the one in residence at the blackfriars playhouse uh and in 1606 ish uh he he hooked up with uh francis francis beaumont but he occasionally stepped out on that relationship with a guy named philip massinger with whom he wrote the pirate comedy and future hurly burly episode uh the sea voyage um, so Beaumont was also a, a guy who yep. wrote some shit. Uh, 
he was born in 1584 and he died in 1616 just one singular month before shakespeare after having survived a stroke in 1613 so that's cool for him um he started his life career as a lawyer uh and then was seduced to the dark side of the theater uh by our favorite professional asshole ben johnson yeah fuck that guy but also like thanks ben johnson for giving us beaumont totally his shit is the tits so yeah um he started working with fletcher as early as about 1605 and god this is my favorite it's my favorite it's my favorite it's such a good anecdote so john aubrey um was a guy who who wrote some shit uh and he he wrote about beaumont and fletcher that they lived in the same house on the bankside in southwark sharing everything in the closest intimacy and having one wench in the house between them i'm pretty sure they mean like a serving wench but also i mean who can say i feel like someone Probably Paul Menzer once made a a comment about how they only had one shirt between the two of them and they like shared the shirt. And I always pick the picture of them as like in like a giant shirt at the same time with <laughs> like, like one Siamese guy having twin one arm. style. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Uh, conjoined twin is the piece. Sorry. Term. Sorry. Uh anyway. They stopped living together in 1613 when Beaumont got married. So that's what happened. Yeah. He ruined everything. Yep. Yeah. Uh, They wrote stuff. Beaumont wrote the ridiculously funny and overcomplicated Night of the Burning Pestle all by his onesie, but was most prolific in collaboration with his BFF and work wife, John Fletcher. Fletcher was a little more productive on his own with plays like The Tamer Tamed, which is a sequel to Shakespeare's Shrew, and Bonduka, which is about the Bronze Age warrior queen. He also wrote The Mad Lover and Woman Pleased, just to name a few. And then with uh, his buddy Beaumont, they wrote titles that you might actually recognize, like um, A King and No King. Philaster. The Scornful Lady. The Captain. And The Woman Hater. Which, incidentally, is a comedy, apparently, and not... A misogynistic rant or tragic comedy. <laughs> well, or I mean, it, it's it's still it's, well, it's probably that. But it's probably yeah, that. It's, it's yeah. a comedy. Yeah, um, yeah Fletcher had a hand in something like fifty-five plays, yeah. which means he is very probably the most prolific playwright of the early modern period, mm-hmm. uh, second only to Anonymous, of but, course. You know, yeah, of course, that motherfucker. Yeah. Uh, So before we launch into a summary of The Maid's Tragedy, we're going to give you our five-word unhelpful titles. This week, mine is Two Wet Blankets Die Virgins. Mm, Good. Mine is King Gets Murdered in Bed. That is also true. That is something that happens in this play. Yeah. Uh, And here is the uh, blessedly short list of important (sighs) folks on the dramatic persona tight little play yeah it is uh, so we're starting with the king who is the king of Rhodes, which is in He's greece i learned the king i yeah. did not know where Rhodes was because of my <laughs> public school geography education mm. uh then there's this guy a mentor who's a nobleman and the king's friend a mentor has a best friend his name is melanchus mm-hmm. uh there's a guy named lysippus who's the king's brother he pops up from time to time 
Melanchus has a sister. Her name is Evadne. Mm-hmm. There's also Aspasia. That's how we pronounce it, right? Aspasia? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, who's very sad, and she was supposed to marry a mentor. She's real sad. Uh, Aspasia has a dad whose name is Kalyanax. Mm-hmm. And then there are various other ladies and lords who make lots of body jokes at inappropriate times. Uh, so, hey, why should this play be so goddamn popular? Yeah, um, it's got some wonderful zingers and innuendo um, all throughout that are really fucking good and surprisingly contemporary. Um, it's got a lovely bromance, if you're into that sort of thing. Um, not quite to like the... I mean, I think it does skew a little homoerotic, but I think it's more one-sided. It's got fantastic monologues and some really great scenes um, for both the male and the female characters. It's got gory, gory tragedy. It is so good, you guys. It's just, it's it's just so good. good. Yeah, it's really, really good. Fucking good. Okay, great. It's summary time. Great. So we are going to summarize the maid's tragedy for you in a segment that this week we are calling If by maid, you mean the poor woman who probably has to clean up all these bodies, then yes, this is definitely her tragedy. (laughs) I am pretty proud of of that. (laughs) So proud of you. It's a good title. I will take no credit for that. (laughs) All right. We have a timer ready or do we even care? Okay, great. I'm ready. Alrighty. Act one. Melanchus, a general, returns from a military campaign, which he has just concluded, expecting to witness the wedding of his best friend ever, a mentor, with Aspasia, a mentor's betrothed. After totally putting his foot in his mouth by congratulating the heartbroken Aspasia on her marriage, whoops, Melanchus learns that the king has ordered a mentor to marry Melanchus's sister, Evadne, instead. Aspasia is utterly shattered and reigns on everyone's joy the entire time. Kalyanax has been humorous quote-unquote, meaning cranky, I think, since his daughter's wedding was broken off and then picks a fight with Melanchus and then with a mentor. And then there's an elaborate and totally not at all allegorical mask after which Evadne and a mentor are taken to their wedding chamber. In Act 2, they are outside the chamber of Evadne and her maids are talking about sex and Aspasia, who is forced to be there by some cruel twist of fate, uh, ruins everything with her unrelenting sadness again. Left alone with her new and clueless husband, Avodny refuses to sleep with a mentor and reveals the king has made her his mistress and has arranged this sham marriage to cover up her dishonor so that he can keep fucking her and he's never gonna stop. And Mm -hmm. she's not gonna sleep with a mentor ever. Mm -hmm. Um, A mentor is horrified. He cries about it, but he agrees to like go through with the charade of pretending to be a happily married couple for like reasons. Um, He sleeps on the floor and it's hilarious. Aspasia (laughs) cries and mopes with her ladies. Kalyanax enters and is angry at the situation some more, and then he makes some threats against the men of the court. Mm-hmm. Act three. The morning after the wedding night, some male courtiers make some really raunchy jokes about all the boning that definitely happened. A mentor is super freaked out, and Melanchius notices immediately because friendship. The king comes in and marks his territory, letting a mentor know the rules that he has to keep his hands off Evadne and act as their pander whenever the king commands. Melanchius makes his BFF spill the tea about his sister, and a mentor cries a lot again. Right after he dissuades a mentor from taking revenge, Melanchius reveals his 
his own plot to kill kill the king to us, the audience, not to anybody else. Um, in order to do this, he has to have control of a citadel that's controlled by Kalianax, who is now everyone's enemy. Uh, the old man enters again, and Melanchus proposes common revenge purposes and tries to get him in on it uh, because the king has wronged both of them. But after he leaves, Kalianax decides to go tattle to the king instead. In Act 4, Melanchus goes to Evadne and forces her to reveal what has happened and then kind of threatens her with an honor killing. It's super gross. Then he gets her to promise to kill the king instead, which is, like, better. Later, Evadne begs a mentor for forgiveness. A mentor cries some more, but then forgives her. Kalianax tattles on Melanchus, but the king doesn't believe him. When everyone except these two leave, Kalianax tells Melanchus that he has no option but to go along with the plot and hand over the citadel. Melanchus expects Evadne to kill the king that night, but at this point, a mentor enters talking wildly of revenge and Melanchus has to pretend that none is planned. Oh my. Dun, dun, right. dun. Act, act five. Buckle up. It's a lot. Yes. The king summons Evadne for sexy times, but when she arrives at his bedchamber, she finds him asleep. So she ties him to the bed, wakes him up, and tells him she's going to kill him because he's a fucking rapist, stabs him repeatedly, makes sure he's dead, then leaves his mutilated corpse for his guards to find. His brother, Lysippus, is proclaimed the new king. Aspatia enters the palace dressed as a man, seeking out a mentor, and when she finds him, she pretends to be her own long-lost brother and picks a fight with a mentor in the name of her own honor. He doesn't recognize her because early modern facial blindness, and during the fight, she deliberately allows herself to be fatally wounded, again, by the man she loves, okay? Evadne enters with her bloody knife and asks a mentor to be her husband for realsies. He hesitates, leaves, so Evadne takes that as a no and stabs herself. He re-enters to find Evadne dead, and the dying Aspatia then reveals herself too. So he stabs himself and he dies. Finally, Melanchus and the new king and the court enter to discover the bodies. Melanchus tries to kill himself too, but is prevented. He promises to starve himself to later. Lysippus promises to rule with temper, quote unquote, unlike his lustful brother. The end. I love this play. What? I love this play. What? It's so crazy. It's so crazy. I love it so much. I love this play. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's so good. Yeah. Big fan. Yep. Yep. Big fan it's of this It's really play. fucking good. Um, so now we're going to do a taste of text where we give you just a small but crucial scene from the play to give you a little, just a little, a little peppering of its flavor. So I think we should do either a section from 2-1 or from 5-2. What is your mm-hmm. preference? Or we could just do that fun little servant scene. Or the yeah, the, the where the courtiers are making the sex jokes for like. 10 oh, lines. let's do that. Yeah, you want to do that? What is okay. that? Uh, two something. Yes. Two one. It's uh, it two. is at the, oh sorry it's at the beginning of three three one. Three. Yeah. Yeah, let's fucking do that. Yeah. Cleon, Strato, and Diphilus. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, but just so our listeners know, Act Two, Scene One, and Act Five, Scene Two are pretty fucking great. Mm. So, the whole play is great. I mean, the it's so good. But like the when Ivadne just drops bombs on people, I am here for it. It's so great. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so we're going to read to you a short little exchange between three uh, courtiers, three of those foul-mouthed courtiers we talked about mm-hmm. before. Um, it takes place in the anteroom to Ivadne's bedchamber. And again, mm-hmm. this is uh, the morning after the supposed sexy, sexy wedding night times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That definitely did not happen. Um, but yep. there's three characters. So who would you like to be, Jess? I mean, Cleon has one line. So let me be Cleon oh. and Strato. Okay, great. Um, and then Diphilus, it is, should be noted, is uh, Avadni's brother. Yes. So, um, yeah. Melentius and Avadni's brother. Yes. Yeah. He's There's in that family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, do you want to just go to a mentor's entrance or how far? Um, yeah. Yeah. We'll go to a okay. mentor's entrance. Cool. So, yeah. Some it's good like shit. 16 lines. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Ye- I'm going to set the scene and I'm totally going to talk like a bro. Yeah, because these guys sweet. are dude bros and they're terrible. So sweet. So yeah. it's like, all right. So like, that's I don't know what that voice is. Um, <laughs> Me either. Yeah. That's great though. Okay. Uh, your sister's not up yet. Oh, brides must take their morning rest. The night is troublesome, but not tedious. What odds? He has not my sister's maidenhead tonight. <laughs> None. It's odds against any bridegroom living. He ne'er gets it while he lives. You're merry with my sister. You'll please to allow me the same freedom with your mother. <laughs> she's at your service. Then she's merry enough herself. She needs no tickling. Knock at the door. We shall interrupt them. No matter. They have the year before them. <laughs> Good morrow, sister. Spare yourself today. The night will come again. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Burn. Yep. Yeah. And that's that. Yep. <laughs> You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fucking brilliant. Yep. <sighs> the Joshin, the Joshin, and like oh, classic your mom joke right in there. I mean, yeah, that's right. just just really good. It's really yeah. good. You're gonna talk about fucking my sister. I'm gonna talk about fucking your mom. Yep, it's great. Really, nothing changes. Just yeah. nothing changes in 400 years and beyond. Just nothing mm-hmm. changes. Mm-hmm. All right. So, talk to us about some stuff. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, I have talked several times previously in fact i think even already the season uh about the wiggins catalog which is a a compendium of like incredibly thorough information on like basically every play that was written from 1580 to 1660 or so um so i'm gonna read to you some stuff out of the wiggins for this play Right on this week, because right like who doesn't who doesn't love to learn some shit? So the play uh, was written, we think, in about 1611. Certainly, it was not written any earlier than 1610. It was first printed in 1619, and then again in 1622. Uh, and these are called uh, variously Q1 and Q2, or A text and B text. Isn't that mm. interesting? And what is yes. I think the most interesting is that the A text is Q2 and the B text is Q1. Weird. And why that is, I am not uh, entirely sure, except that um, they think Q2 is more authorial. Hmm. And so it gets the A designation. Anyway, so hmm. here's here's what we have to say about Q1 and Q2. So Q1 was printed in 1619. This is the B text. Um which they think was printed from a transcript of an illicitly acquired prompt book 
oh. and the it had been sort of abridged and censored, and there are some significant cuts. Um, the 1622 a text q2 uh comes from it's set from a copy of q1 but it's annotated with reference to a manuscript of the play that was probably written in francis beaumont's hand okay so it might have been um like a non-theatrical version of his foul papers Ooh. um but so that that is i guess why q2 is the a text and is considered more authorial sure Okay, coming from the that. foul papers as opposed to yeah. a prompt book which would have been written out presumably by a scrivener just to yes. keep people on the same yep. page as it were <laughs> yep yep um the time period that this is set in is antiquity mm. isn't that nice <laughs> that's we love that? so wonderfully vague that's great I know, right right <laughs> um <Yep. laughs> also the the time that elapses within the play is super short okay so we've got it starts at evening okay act three takes place the next morning five one takes place that night and five two and five three are the following day yeah so it's about it's like a day and a half yeah uh, of time in this play which is um unusual for early modern plays right like most plays have have big swathes of time right mm-hmm. uh, especially travel plays or history plays yes. like lots of shit happens okay yeah um even <laughs> comedies frankly there's a lot of passage yeah. of time um yeah so this is this is nice and tight it's not quite uh adhering to what's his ass's unities is that aristotle aristotle yeah yeah his unities not quite but, but almost yeah, yeah it's getting there it's it is approaching unification if you will uh um so there are some sources for this play um some stuff that i've never heard of uh sydney's arcadia um shakespeare's two gents and coriolanus Mm. and then within the text itself um it references one henry four hamlet coriolanus what spanish yeah where uh, in 4-2, i just apparently. read it today but okay it says in four two i missed that or maybe completely. it might not be like a direct reference but something something is being pulled on mm. from Coriolanus. Mm. um something mm, called the spanish the moore's stuff. tragedy yeah mm-hmm. definitely the gay stuff <laughs> spanish moore's tragedy by decker houghton and day um and then cynthia's revels by ben johnson and uh, a couple of his poems as well mm um there's one allegorical character in the play knight yeah who who makes makes an appearance in a mask yep that mask is elaborate too like it takes up a couple of pages of this script like it is it's a full-on mask yes it is um and because of that mask, one of the uh, staging requirements of this play is uh, Aeolus enters from a rock. <laughs> nice. So, that's a consideration uh-huh. for mm-hmm. staging uh, at any at any point because you yep. got to figure out how you're gonna fucking do that. That's your buck basket moment, yeah. right yep. there. Well, that's one of them. Yeah, I mean, you could also just cut the mask. Okay, so then we have some early stage history, which I think is really fucking interesting. Okay. Um, Hit so me. 
1611 and after, it was performed by the Kingsmen at the Blackfriars uh, nice. and probably also the Globe. So this hmm. was a, an indoor and outdoor play. And if Ooh. I mean, if you if you have seen it um, or have read it or have any familiaration, familiaration, <laughs> if you're familiar with it at all, um, it is an intimate play. Right. It works mm-hmm. really well in a space like the Blackfriars. Uh, thinking about it on a stage like the Globe, um, there's some different considerations to make, mm-hmm. right, with, yeah. with how you're going to deal with these interior moments, right? Like a lot of this play takes place in chambers and right yeah. outside chambers and yeah. like in bedrooms, right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, the cast for this this play at its premiere uh, included a guy whose name was John Lowen, and he played Melanchus. Okay. Uh, he's going to be important slightly later which is why i'm making a big deal over his name okay uh in 1612 and 1613 ish the play was performed by the king's men at court between christmas 1612 and the 9th of april 1613 which was a friday um and the audience included prince charles lady elizabeth and the elector palatine frederick v who married uh elizabeth princess elizabeth Mm. Um, John Hemmings, he of folio fame, uh-huh. uh, was paid 93 pounds, six shillings and eight pence for this and 13 other performances. Holy shit. Yeah. So for 14 plays or performances, I, I suppose I don't know how many plays, but for 14 performances of this and something else, um, he was paid 93 pounds, six shillings and eight pence. Um, I don't math so i'm not sure how much that works out to per performance but it seems not insubstantial yeah seems like a lot of money and hemmings was kind of the company manager at the point at that point right he was the money guy who took so so it wasn't just money that hemmings was taking that that wasn't his money that was oh no no no. what the king's men were paid yes yeah yeah okay okay wasn't just Hey, John Hemmings, have yeah. some cash. That wasn't like his take is what I'm no, saying. Like no, no, not no, each. No, no. Yeah. Okay. No, he was, he was the new Henslow. Sure. Um, okay. So uh, around 1620, the play appears on a list that was compiled by the Revels office because it was being considered for possible performance at court. Um, and it was up against something called the false friend. Hmm. Uh, which might be another Bowfetch play. I'm not sure. I've heard of it, but I, it might, I don't Same, know. Anyway. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, whether or not it actually got performed is unclear. Okay. In 1630. Okay. So we're a full 20 years after the play has been written. Uh, it was performed again by the Kingsmen at the cockpit in court on the 9th of December, which was a Thursday. Um, performance took place in the evening and the audience included King Charles the first, he of the famous beheading, uh-huh. uh, some years later and his wife, Queen Henrietta Maria, John Lowen, the guy uh-huh. who played Melanchus at the premiere, yeah. uh, was paid 260 pounds for this and 20 other court performances that year. Holy balls. That guy yeah. was raking in some dough. Yeah. Um, so I, I think we can assume that by 1630, John Lowen had taken over from uh, Hemmings and mm. he was he was the new man in charge. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1636. So we're, we're at the 25 year anniversary of this play mm-hmm. performed again by the Kingsman at Hampton court on Tuesday, the 29th of November, the audience included King Charles the first and queen Henrietta Maria again. They really so seem to like that play. Well, they saw it at least twice. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I would see this play twice. I would say this way I more think than I, twice. I did, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so in 1636, John Lowen and uh, a partner, I suppose, Joseph Taylor, were paid 210 pounds for this and 20 other court performances. Mm. Um, the prices are going up a little bit, but also mm-hmm. the an, amount of performances are going up. Um, so isn't that interesting? It is, yeah. Yeah. That's what I have to say about that. Um, if you are out there in the world and you would like to get your hands on a copy of this and read it, you can. In fact, it is uh, widely anthologized. Uh, I think probably the best version is going to be in the Norton anthology of what is it? English Renaissance drama. Is that what this is called? Yep. Norton Anthology of English Renaissance Drama, edited by David Bevington, the Mm -hmm. late, great David Bevington. Um, There's also a a Revels version and um, I've got Oxford. I've got the Forgotten Books version um, Mm. in the collected works of Beaumont and Fletcher. Mm. So I found it on Amazon. So good. There are there are ways to get your hands on this text. Yeah, it's widely anthologized. So go go forth and find. Also, it's on the internet for free. So like true. Yeah, that. Yeah. Um, Uh, So that's what I have to say about uh, the stuff. And just as a reminder to all of our little budding stage managers and dramaturgs out there, how can one get their hands on the Wiggins? Ooh, uh, you need an institutional library who has it. Okay, so check check your university library first. Yeah, it is a. And it's called The Wiggins, or is there like a more complicated title? British drama, uh, sorry, British drama, 1533 to 1642, colon, a catalog. Um, It it is widely referred to as The Wiggins because it's Martin Wiggins did it with uh, Catherine Richardson. Great. Anyway, I do believe um, when it is done, it will be something like 12 volumes. Um, and also when it is done, there is uh, a, a digital component is um, in the works, but it's not done. So, but it's close. I think we're on volume 10 or 11. Anyway. Okay. So um, I was going to try to re-watch this play, but I, uh, on our archives, because the ASC did this play not too long ago during our actors renaissance season 14 yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, it was during our first year in the program Mm -hmm. um so we just happened to be there when it happened um so i got to see it but then i'm kind of glad i didn't get to rewatch it because it forced me to go back and actually read the text and have some of my own opinions and not just like watch you know greg and abby be sad and gorgeous the whole time so what i was struck by is that this play feels kind of weirdly contemporary to me um i mean there's there's this pitfall with a lot of tragedies particularly sex and like domestic tragedies from this period where like women you know particularly like sexually deviant women end up dying like right they always die either of shame or like sort of an honor killing of themselves um and this play has that but i think it kind of subverts that too um because by the time evadne kills herself she's got way more to die for than just being a rape victim um she's there's a lot more at stake for her and she's great 
Um, but but it also felt a little like the situation she found herself in in that play reminded me of Philippa Gregory's The Other Boleyn Girl. And I'm wondering if Philippa Gregory, other than like, you know, sampling from Tudor history, like, I don't know, it, it this feels like a trope of like a king coercing a young woman into a sexual relationship. Um, it feels very now, I think, because of books and movies like that, that, that sort of um, redo uh, or reiterate that trope. So I don't know. It just felt it felt really contemporary to me. Uh, and Evadne is really defiant about it. She even like claims her sexuality for a while when she's kind of like wrapped up in it. That's part of what Act 2, Scene 1 is. Uh, where she kind of eviscerates a mentor. Um, it's a really wonderful scene, I think, really powerful. So I don't. I, I feel like it's it's something that t- women in 2020 would recognize. Um, also, the the really sweet friendship, like homosexual. I don't want to say homosexual because that makes it sexual. It's what's the homosocial? word I'm looking for? Homosocial, platonic, homoerotic. <laughs> it is a little homoerotic, but it's a very sweet like. Otis and, and Eric friendship that Melanchus and a mentor have. And if you, Do you don't understand that reference, if okay. you don't understand that reference, go watch Sex Education on Netflix, you heathens. Go and watch it. But they have like, I don't know, it's I, I, I love that that friendship on on Netflix because it's it's very like it subverts the whole idea of toxic masculinity. And I feel like on some level Melanchus and a mentor kind of have that. Although Melanchus, I think, is a lot older than a mentor. So there's kind of a mentorship happening as well. Um, and also, I do think it's kind of one-sided. I don't think Melanchus would say no if a mentor made a move, but that's neither here nor there. I don't think a mentor is going to do that. Um, it's not as like hot and charged as Coriolanus and Ophidius. But I don't know. It just it just felt it felt really modern to me. And there's the rad mom joke that's totally worth repeating that we just read. Um, and I feel like the tragic figures are nuanced and sensitive in a kind of a rare way for this period and for this genre. Um, Evadne and Aspasia, I think, are both really challenging leading female roles, although Aspasia disappears for quite some time. I'm not even sure I'd call her a lead role because she like she's in the first two acts and then she doesn't come back until the very last scene of Act 5. Yeah. Um, so she disappears for a while but but they're both they have some gorgeous speeches and and they sort of they die on their own terms and it's very sad but i don't know they're really rad i think they're great acting challenges um for for anybody trying to play those roles i think the same thing for a mentor really he's not classically like macho or you know, masculine, feel my air quotes really hard, please, masculine, um, in that like annoying early modern way with a lot of bravado. He's actually, he's in the exposition of like the first scene, he's reported to be a a sweet, sensitive guy um, who's very accommodating, you know, to his detriment, I think he's so accommodating that he just marries when the king says jump, he says how high. Or when the king says marry this woman, he goes okay, I guess. Even though he's actually like not in love with her, so like he's maybe even too accommodating. But like that's that's like a big factor of his personality. So I think they are challenging roles to play. I kind of feel like the only character who's really sort of two dimensional, maybe, and like v- all just villainous is the king the whole time. You know yeah, what I mean? That tracks. Um, yeah, and and so he. 
and again, like finding depth in a in a sort of classically two dimensional character is is a hard thing too. Like playing the king is not easy, um, but you don't have as as much to grasp onto. You have to you have to fabricate a lot more with a character like that than than what you're given with some of the other tragic characters in this play. So I I enjoy that. Uh, and as we mentioned in our summary, there's an awesome stabbing in a bed where he's like, literally, can we just read some of this? Like, I know we already did a taste of text, but I just, uh, I need the people to know. Just like, I just need them to know. Act five, scene two. Like, can you please, please, please read this with me? Okay. Um... I will read Ivadni if you will read the king from starting uh, at about line 25 ish, 24, 25 ish. I'll shape his sins like furies. It's like three lines or so before the state track. Got it. Got it. Okay. I'll shape his sins like furies till I waken his evil angel, his sick conscience, and then I'll strike him dead. King, by your leave, I dare not trust your strength, your grace, and I must grapple upon even terms no more. So if he rail me not from my resolution, I shall be strong enough. My lord the king, my lord, asleeps. As if he meant to wake me no more, my lord, is he not dead already? Sir, my lord. Who's that? Oh, you sleep soundly, sir. My dear Evadne, I have been dreaming of thee. Come to bed. I am come at length, sir, but how welcome. What pretty new device is this, Evadne? What? Do you tie me to you? By my love, this is a quaint one. Come, my dear, and kiss me. I'll be thy Mars. To bed, my queen of love. Let us be caught together, that the gods may see and envy our embraces. Stay, sir, stay. You are too hot, and I have brought you physic to temper your high veins. Prithee to bed, then. Let me take it warm. Here thou shalt know the state of my body better. <laughs> I know you have a surfeited, so foul body, and you must bleed. Bleed! I, you shall bleed. Lie still, and if the devil your lust will give you leave, repent! And we'll stop there. <laughs> like, and then stab, 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 stab! And then a few more lines and some more stabbing, and then she leaves. And it's so fucking good. I just love it that he thinks he's getting some, like, really kinky stuff, and then he ends up dying. Uh, it's great. So have fun staging that. Uh, also have fun staging the subsequent bloodbath. Uh, that's fun too. And that stupidly elaborate mask. Yeah. Although you could cut it, but like, yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy and silly. I mean, cutting the mask is always a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just so much to love and some great staging challenges and some really great and nuanced and kind of surprising characters. So I think go to town on this play, have fun. It's, I think, uh, like just a... An un- underused and underrated little gem of a tragedy. So that's all I have to say. Cool. Yeah. Should we play a game? We can do line roulette. I'll do it this time. Cool. So I'm going to roll some dice. We're going to come uh-huh. up with an active scene number. And then Great. Aubrey's going to get a minute to tell me why that line uh represents the whole play and totally. that's the game if you've been yep. around you know this game it's our favorite game all yep. right uh aubrey act three okay done 
scene four? Do we have a scene four? I'm not sure there is a scene four. Do we have a scene three? Let me check. Hang on. Da, 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 da. Scene two is awfully long, All right. but hang on. Well, yeah, there's only uh, scene one and scene two. So. Okay. Well, then two, because that's what I rolled just now. Groovy. And let's go with line 261. Okay. Act three, scene two. Line. Flippity flip. 261. Oh, my. It's a mentor. Are you ready for this? It's almost like uh, ordained. Hold on. Thy love, mm. oh wretched I, I, thy love, Melanchus. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? What a perfect line. Uh, it's a little different in my text. Oh, what is it in your text? It's uh, about five lines later, Melanchus, uh, as well as I could and sent him smiling from me. Oh, weird. Yeah. Editions, man. Textual variation. Yeah. Okay, I'm ready to do this if you if you have the timer. Yeah. Cool. So the line again is, Thy love, O wretched I, I, thy love, Melanchus. Okay, so this is really the crux of the play. A mentor says this line. Poor a mentor who thinks, the, like, before the play starts, he, th he thinks he's in love with uh, Aspatia and they're going to get married. And then he loses that love. And then he thinks that he's getting an even better deal with Evadne because the king must really like him and appreciate him to give him this woman, right? And then he's thwarted in that love. And then his friend comes home, thank God, and is the only person watching his back, the only person who's there for him, like in a ride or die way. Uh, and he he turns to him and he's like, your love is the only thing I have left. And it's true. That's the only love left for poor, sad, a mentor. And for him to say it out loud and to lament it like that is just <laughs> the play. That's kind of what he does the entire play. So I don't know how articulate that was, but it's been a while since I've done this. Yeah, well. Yep. And that's the play. Ta-da. Cool. The Great. end. What's next? Great. Gossip? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to skip cool. some corrections because we are never wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, yeah. So we've got some cool Shakespeare bubble gossip. Um, this really cool article uh, I found on Richard Burbage um, on his life and uh, company and about how he's like, he, you know, basically about how he was the most celebrated actor of his time and like to the point like legendary um and shakespeare's good friend it's a great read so it's at s-i-l-i s-i library one dot wordpress.com um, it's we'll the shakespeare institute library blog that's what it is thank you yeah. <laughs> shakespeare institute library blog brilliant um so if you ever wanted to know more about richard burbage and about how like the hand he may have had in some of Shakespeare's plays because of that relationship. Like it just brings up a lot of interesting stuff about this guy that, you know, Shakespeare gets a lot of the glory now. Um, but in his time, Burbage was like way fucking more famous and apparently, you know, reputed to be just one of the best actors with the best techniques and looks of shock, like and his best gestures and all that stuff. He was like the dude. Um, so we'll put that link up on 
on our homepage for this episode if you want to read that. There's some really cool shit happening at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival under the artistic direction of uh, Nataki Garrett. She has put in some new like educational initiatives. Uh, she's gotten those going like... Uh, she plans, I'm looking at the last paragraph here, it's in the Playbill uh, online magazine. In the next few years, she plans to push technology-driven initiatives like the launch of a digital archive and an OSF app. She's also developing a residency for artists across different mediums, as well as forging an alliance with of West Coast theaters. And she wants to think about expanding OSF and catalyzing shifts in the, in the American theater, which... I just got super excited about one, a fucking digital archive. Does that mean video? Does, oh, that would be so amazing. It'd be amazing. I'm just like drooling as someone who doesn't get to go to OSF regularly anymore because it's 3,000 miles away from me and expensive. It just sounds like some really cool shit happening over there. So um, we will also put those links up. Uh, what else? What else? What else? Oh, yeah. Did you see this thing? This, this. This yep. article on yep. uh, from the Telegraph. Sure did. Yeah, a lot of academic Twitter got really up in arms just about the headline. Like, it's kind of hard to read the whole article unless you pay. There's a paywall. <laughs> um, but the title all by itself, uh, the headline all by itself was pretty fucking offensive. So the article is called, The Woke Brigade is Close to Canceling Shakespeare. Uh, and it's, it's on the Telegraph website, and they're using a... The headline picture, oh, it's been changed now. Yeah, because the globe uh-huh. brought action against them. Yeah, because the original photo that was attached to this article was of a deaf actor. Mm-hmm. Um, a deaf woman of color actor. Woman of color actor. And yeah, she was really upset, as you know, as you should be, I think, about the content of this article and what yeah. it's trying to say about quote-unquote woke culture. Yeah. Um, and so the globe um, forced them to change it and take it down. She didn't want her likeness being used for that. So, um, so now instead they have a picture of Rosie Sheehy as King John at the RSC because apparently, you know, regendering or cross-gendering is "quote unquote" woke brigade as well. Yeah, I mean the caption to that photo. Yeah, such as the rage for gender flipping that a traditionally cast production is now a rarity. Which, like, oh, no, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's really not. It's really it's not. not. Shakespeare's fine. Shakespeare's yeah. not going anywhere. Shakespeare's okay. <laughs> Shakespeare's fucking dead, so. Yeah. Calm calm your tits. Your tits, yeah. I need them to be calm. Yeah, but the cis-het white guy, Dominic yeah. Cavendish, who wrote this, seems to be all up in arms about it. He has a history of doing this kind of real shitty critique, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's honestly don't read it for the paywall or no, whatever. Don't. Just know that a lot of people in our Shakespeare and theater community are upset by the way he has appropriated that word um, and turned it into a pejorative thing. Uh, and then doing like the white guy thing of making fun of it. But on a lighter note, uh, fan of the pod, Gordon Geese? Geis? Not sure of the pronunciation there, bud. Um, emailed to let us know about his 11-day Shakes pilgrimage to see 11 Shakespeare plays at nine venues up and down the East Coast. He reported back that Timon, starring Catherine Hunter, that we shouted out a while ago, he went and saw that. 
He said it was amazing. He also said the Hamlet production starring Ruth Naga, that's the Irish uh, actress, he said, uh, well, choices were made. So thanks for keeping in touch. We're glad you're living it up in Shakespeare land. You know, just shouting you out. So what's next? Um, The Guardian uh, Mm -hmm. has an article from today, question mark, or yesterday, uh, about um, a adaptation translation of Macbeth in Australia um, where it's it's been uh, translated into Noongar language which uh, I believe is an aboriginal uh-huh. language indigenous to Hawaii uh, not Hawaii Australia mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's the end of the day uh-huh. um, it sounds amazing the yeah. pictures are stunning yeah. uh, so check that out and learn some shit about uh, adaptation and the politics of uh, translation and adaptation um, yeah it it sounds incredible sounds incredible so we didn't talk about this uh but a couple of weeks ago at the end of uh january middle of january but i guess about a month ago um was the most recent symposium in the race before race series of uh-huh. uh symposia that have been going on um for a while it's co-hosted uh by the folger shakespeare library and the it's it's acrms and i don't know what that stands for arizona center for race and no renaissance and medieval studies that's what it is not race okay. and medieval studies renaissance and medieval studies uh and they're at uh the arizona state anyway so this happened it was incredible on the twitter but arizona's hard to get to uh for a lot of people and it happened like the second weekend of the semester for also yeah. a lot of people so, so anyway yeah they filmed all, all most of uh the panels speakers whatever's awesome uh, and they're available to watch on the youtube oh that's so, so great we'll throw a link up to that um yeah. i want to give a special shout out to uh justin shaw's talk uh which was titled a song of willow colon barbary's blues and theft of happiness in early modern england um justin is doing incredible work uh on race and othello and um all kinds of other things humors um i've heard some of his work he's awesome check it out i plan to sounds amazing yeah yeah Yeah, it's i mean it's an all-star lineup of speakers um from renaissance and medieval uh studies um and you should just fucking go and listen to it is what you should do yeah so um and then i feel like there was one more thing on here but i have so many tabs open it says i saw ophelia i saw ophelia last night um what this does that is, mean? <laughs> yeah, this is a movie uh, from last year, question mark, starring Daisy Ridley. She of Star Wars fame. Uh, she plays Rey in the new trilogy. Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, play, she's uh, Ophelia. Um, and it's, it is a film adaptation of a YA novel, uh, I believe by the same name. Um, mm-hmm. And it is worth watching. Uh, I believe it did not get very good reviews. I had problems with parts of it, but it is stunning to look at. Mm. It has an all-star cast. Clive Owen plays Claudius. Naomi Ooh. Watts plays Gertrude. Uh, who, Draco wait, who, Malfoy, who, isn't it? Who plays Gertrude? Naomi Watts. Oh, Naomi Watts. Okay, I just missed what you said. Uh, you Rebecca. said, and... 
Draco Malfoy is in it. AKA Tom Felton. Felton, thank you. Uh-huh. He plays <laughs> I wanted Laertes. to say Hardy and I was like, nope, that's not the right yeah. Tom. <laughs> um, I have heard, I have not read the book, but I kind of want to now. I've heard that in the book, Ophelia ends up with Horatio. She does not mm. in the movie. Um, but the guy who plays Horatio is hot. <laughs> nice. He is hot. It, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a stunningly visual film. It's hmm. a visually stunning film. Um, and <laughs> I, I, I kind of thought it was a romp. You know, it's it's Hamlet, but from Ophelia's point of view. And right on. Um, it, she has a lot more agency. Um, and Hamlet is I mean, just as much of a fuckboy as he is sure. in, in, in Shakespeare's play. Um, my biggest critique is if if you want to do Hamlet, just do Hamlet. Um, because... Uh, be more specific when you yeah, use that I'm, verb, yes, do. Yeah, sh- well, if you would let me finish my fucking sentence. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Because <laughs> there's nothing... Like, even, even in an adaptation, even in a YA adaptation of Hamlet, if you want to say neither a borrower nor a lender be... You can. You can do that. Yeah. You you don't have to say, don't take money or lend it to anyone else. Uh, you know, if you uh-huh. want to say, to thine own self be true, you can. You can say that. You don't have to say, be true to yourself. Um, and there, it was that, and then it was that scene and um, <sighs> the player scene that mm-hmm. I really wish that they had just lifted a little bit more from Shakespeare yeah um rather than trying to straight up adapt them pretty much everything else is is fine and then maybe the get thee to a nunnery scene I would have liked him to say get thee to a nunnery what does he say instead he says go to the nunnery oh yeah um so he didn't try to update nunnery. That's interesting in the in well, the, script, no, the it's, film script. It's not yeah it's not an update it's a it's a period period okay adaptation. Oh, okay yeah gotcha um how can one do this sure what what period it, it, it sure. is in <laughs> what streaming service i assume some sort of streaming service has uh, it i or did you probably, see it on a dvd we watched it on the big screen oh. oh um it's not it's not a recent release uh but it was part of our film series oh gotcha okay um i assume it's out there to be found in the okay. world somewhere so well all right then. but um yeah if you if you somehow missed it uh maybe seek it out all right that's it yeah okay (laughs) um thank you so much for listening everyone we hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started tune in next week for the winner's tale 301 and we'll leave you with this madam shall we undress you for this fight the wars are naked that you must make tonight (laughs) sorry i just i just love that like that dirty lady in waiting she's so good anyway whamlet out whamlet out if you enjoyed our podcast please tell your friends rate us leave us a review and subscribe on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts for show notes and other fun stuff visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com get in touch with us tell us what you're working on and thinking about you can email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com you can also find us at Hurly Burly Shakes on Instagram or Hurly Burly Shake on Twitter. Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent.
Um, they are the OG Missy and Timbaland ultimate <laughs> collabo duo of the EM period. <laughs> I don't know what those words meant, but I said them for you.